0: Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11, and we'll be reading through chapter 6, verse 12. About this we have much to say, which is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of God's Word. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God with instruction about ablutions, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account, and hold Him up to contempt. For the land which has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Though we speak thus, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do? And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises.
1: The aim of this text is... Very positive and is stated in verse 11 of chapter 6, which we focused on last week. The author wants to help these people maintain, realize, get and keep a full, strong, justified assurance of hope. The gymnast that we looked at last week, had been sloughing off in his training sessions. He finds himself halfway through this routine starting to wobble, starts into his double back flip, gets six feet off the ground, realizes he's just about out of control, begins to panic. And he needs two things, we said. He needs help from the coach to get back down onto the mat on his feet instead of his head. And then after he gets back down, he needs a good talking to about his sloughing off. So the first thing is provided with the words, find the floor. Which means get your eyes on the floor, out of the ceiling in the haze of the crowd. Which means look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Orient yourself on him, get solidity back into your life and your land. So he's down on the floor now. The second thing we saw was that the coach walks up to him after he comes across the uh, mat there and uh, looking kind of sheepish, and he says, you know why you got into trouble, don't you? He didn't say anything. He says, you got into trouble because you've been sloughing off. You haven't been putting the basics to practice. You learn these basics. You haven't done anything with them for the last two weeks. You're just banking on past experience. And it showed up in your performance. So, this week, we're going to work on the basics and put them to work in the routine of righteousness. Third, which we didn't say anything about last week and is the point of today's message, the coach looks him in the eye to give this third needed dimension of support for his assurance and his success. And he says, look, if you ignore me and go on sloughing off, you're going to break your neck. Now, that's a paraphrase of chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. So, let's read it again. It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, we have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy or fall away, since they crucify the Son of God in their own, on their own account and hold Him up to contempt. For land which has drunk the rain that often falls upon it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. So here's the warning of the coach, the third element in the building of assurance. A warning. It's not intended to jeopardize a well-founded assurance. It's intended to assist a well-grounded assurance. And if that perplexes you, then my goal is to take away that perplexity this morning. Help you see how this functions as a support for assurance. I have four questions to ask about this warning. Number one, what is the danger that is about to befall these people? Is it? lostness and condemnation in eternity or is it a temporal discipline after which they will go to heaven second question what brings this danger to pass what what are they doing that subjects them to this danger or what might they not do to avoid it third question Can a person who is born again and justified and adopted and sealed by the Holy Spirit have this danger befall them? And finally, should we who count ourselves among the elect, born again, justified by faith, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, sealed under the day of redemption, pay any attention to a warning like this or skip over it? when we read the Bible. Question number one, and I'll try to answer these briefly with bases in Hebrews, but if I don't satisfy you, please come back tonight and ask your questions. Question number one, what is the danger in these verses? Is it lostness and eternal destruction or is it temporal discipline after which these people will go to heaven anyway? The answer is, it is lostness and eternal destruction. The final curse of God and hell is being threatened here. He is not talking about a mere rap on the knuckles because of what they've done, after which all will be all right. He is talking about destruction. Now, there are three reasons in Hebrews that I believe that. Number one, it comes from verses 7 to 8. Two kinds of farmland here are contrasted. And this farmland illustration in verses 7 and 8, you can see, is introduced with the word for, which means it's a an explanation or a, a ground for why the people who commit apostasy and fall away are beyond help and beyond repentance. Why is it? Land which has drunk rain that often falls upon it. Now, that rain is described for us in verses 4 and 5 in much detail. That rain that falls on you every Sunday fell on you in your Christian home if you grew up in a Christian home. Falls on you from the radio. Falls on you when the sun rises by the grace of God. Rain after rain after rain. If The land brings forth vegetation or fruit useful to the one for whom it is cultivated. It will be blessed. But here's another kind of land. If that rain of God's grace and God's word and God's spirit comes upon you day after day after day and it bears thorns and thistles. Then there are three words used to describe the destiny of that land. It is worthless. It will be cursed. And it will be burned. Now look at those words for a minute. Worthless. Thrown away. No tension paid to it anymore. Cursed. That is not a temporal discipline. A curse is the opposite of the blessing. And then most significant of all, its end is to be burned. Note the word end, not means. Don't let anybody tell you the burning is the clearing of this land so it can be replanted so it can bear fruit. That's not the point. Its end is to be burned. Its goal is hell. That's the point of the verse. A fruitless field is damned. That's the point of the verse. So that's my first reason for believing that the issue at stake here is not a temporal rap on the knuckles after which we all go to heaven. It's hell. Here's my second reason for believing this. Turn with me, if you would, to chapter 10, verse 35, following. What the author is doing now in chapter 10, verse 35, is urging them... To maintain assurance, just like he was urging them to maintain assurance in chapter 6. This whole book is after your assurance. Now, how does he do it? He says, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. And then, just like in chapter 6, he buttresses that urging with a warning. In verses 38 and 39. My righteous one. "...shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back..." That's the same as falling away in chapter 6. "...if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him." But then the author says, "...but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed," note the word, "...but of those who have faith and..." note. Keep their souls, which is the opposite of being destroyed. So there is wording that I do not think will fit any model of temporal discipline. That word destroyed is uniformly used for great and terrible destruction and in numerous places for final and eternal destruction. And keeping your souls is the opposite of losing your souls which echoes Jesus words about losing your life if you try to save it so my second reason for believing that what's at stake in the warnings of hebrews is hell is the wording of verses 38 and 39 of chapter 10 reason number 3 if you want to turn with me to hebrews 12:14 i think this one is the clearest of all and the most free from the possibility of distortion. It says in verse 14 of chapter 12, Strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The warning in this verse is that if you don't pursue holiness, you won't see the Lord. Now, what does it mean not to see the Lord? Is that temporal discipline? To never see the Lord? No way. This is hell. This is separation from God. This is being cut off from the presence of the Savior. People who don't pursue holiness, but drift away into sin will be cut off from Christ and never see him. That's my third reason for believing that what's at stake in the warnings of the book of Hebrews is eternal destruction, not temporal discipline. So my answer to the first question is that what's at stake in the issue of perseverance in the warnings of Hebrews is eternal life. Or eternal judgment. Hebrews 10.27 calls it a fearful prospect of judgment and fury of fire. Chapter 12 verse 29 says our God is a consuming fire. Second question. What brings such judgment upon a person? What do you have to do to qualify for this judgment the answer is given in verse 6 of chapter 6 namely apostasy or as the other translations have it falling away if they commit apostasy or fall away they get beyond repentance now let me clarify something very specifically here it does not say that if you repent, you won't be forgiven, does it? It says there will come a day when you may not be able to repent. You will get beyond the possibility of sincerely turning from sin and cleaving to Christ. That's what's being held out here as the danger. If you can repent, you can be saved. But there are people who get to the point where they can't anymore. It's called falling away. Back in chapter three, it's called hardening. Now what is this falling away? Let's analyze it for a moment. The whole context of chapter five, eleven to six, twelve stresses that it is a moral thing, not primarily a doctrinal thing. Apostasy In this text is not primarily the changing of your mind, say, about the deity of Jesus. I once believed he was God. Now I believe he's an an angel. And I'm a Jehovah's Witness. That's not what's at view primarily in this text. What's at issue in this text is not primarily a doctrinal change, as important as that is. But a moral drifting and moving away. Now let me illustrate from what we've already seen. Verse 7. What's the point of supporting verses 4 to 6 with verses 7 to 8? This field analogy that one field doesn't bear fruit and one field does bear fruit. The point is that they're talking about the same thing. The rain that falls down on this farmland is the very rain described in verses 4 and 5. And if it doesn't bear fruit, it's going to be cursed. So what's the issue of apostasy? Not bearing fruit. That is, gradually drifting, neglecting Forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, hardening, and then the point of no return. Boom. And you're never able to repent again, no matter what preaching you hear. Or, to support it further, we could just think about chapter 12, verse 14. If you don't pursue holiness, you won't see the Lord. What's the issue? Not a doctrinal shift, a failure to pursue holiness. A drifting backward instead of a progressing forward. Or, here's another illustration. Chapter 5, verse 14. We analyzed it last week. These people are starting to become unwilling to practice. The organ of faith is not pumping the blood of obedience. It's just kind of just slowing down and just resting on past performances. And the coach sees this happening and says, Get that thing pumping! Do you see what's at stake? It's a moral issue. You can see it in the verse, their their faculties of discerning right and wrong are becoming blurry. Some of you have experienced this. You drift so far away, you can't make sense out of right and wrong anymore. You start to think what's right is wrong and what's wrong is right and everything becomes hazy and you're in grave danger at that point of making shipwreck of faith. The issue of apostasy is primarily moral in this text, not primarily mental or doctrinal. What exposes a person to danger in this text then is this. The persistent failure to exercise the organ of faith in the pursuit of holiness. Now mark it. I am not talking about perfection. I'm talking about pursuit. Is that clear? I'm talking about a pursuit of holiness. and You know the difference in your own life whether you are drifting in indifference or whether you get up in the morning and say, Oh my God, I want to be holy today. None of us achieves it perfectly. But there is a canyon of difference between those who want it and pursue it and those who are careless and don't. If you allow yourself to drift down the river of sin with the oars in the boat and your feet on the seat and the walkman of the world on your head, waving at those corny preachers on the side that are hollering their lungs out to try to get you to put the oars in the water, you will get to a point in the river where no matter how hard you row, you will go over the falls. I told a story in this pulpit five or six years ago that I'm assuming nobody will remember I'm going to tell it again since half of you weren't here probably anyway. There was a vulture. I told this to Barnabas while I was taking a shower this morning. He always comes in while I'm taking a shower and says, tell me a Bible story. Cause I won't tell Quintal and Quincy stories on Sunday morning. I only tell Bible stories. So I told him the story and he didn't know what a vulture was. You said, he said, you mean buzzard? I said, buzzard, that'll do. There was a buzzard flying over Niagara Falls. And he saw a dead fox on a big ice floe, floating down the river, about a quarter mile upstream. And he circles down, land starts to eat that fox. And he knows the falls are coming, no problem, he's got wings. And so he keeps right on eating, processing the sound, he'll know just the time when he can get off. He keeps right on eating, and just when the water gets real rough and he's about to go over the falls, he spreads his big wings and flaps them, and his claws are frozen in the ice, and he goes over the falls and gets killed. My dad told me that in a revival meeting when I was a kid. I never have forgotten that story. scared me to death. It ought to. Because there are Christians who have the notion that they can pray to receive Jesus, spend the next 40 years toying with the world thinking, I'll get it cleaned up in the end before I hear the falls just around the corner. You know what this book is saying? Don't count on it. Don't count on it. If you sit on the ice floe of the world toying with the carcass of sin long enough, you will get beyond the ability to repent. And there's so many people, they said, I got wings, man! I'm a Christian! You tell me I'm in trouble! I've got wings. I can take off any time I want and toy with as much sin as I want. Watch, I can flap my wings. i got the Holy Spirit inside. Watch this, I can speak in tongues. I can do miracles. We'll come back to that later on. The answer to the second question is the danger of destruction is brought about by the persistent failure to exercise the organ of faith To pursue holiness, to pump the blood of obedience, to fly away from sin and land in the fields of righteousness. Question number three. Can this happen to a person who has been born again, justified by faith, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, sealed unto the day of redemption? No, it can't. And there are a lot of New Testament texts that would support that. But I'm going to stay with Hebrews, lest anybody who is skeptical about the unity of the Bible accuse me of twisting Hebrews to fit Romans 8.30. Those who are justified will be glorified. I have that grand certainty that those who are justified will make it. But can you find that in Hebrews? You can indeed. I'll show you two places. If you want to turn there with me, chapter 3, verse 14. I can tell you're interested in these verses. I'm going to use the New American Standard Bible. To get the tense just exactly right. We have become. Now, most of your versions say we are. That's fine. But notice it. The Greek tense is you are because you have become. We have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, a well-grounded assurance, firm to the end. Now, let's analyze this verse. It is so important. Notice what it does not say. It does not say you will become a partaker of Christ if you persevere to the end. Does it? No. It says you have become a partaker of Christ if you persevere to the end. Now, do you? Do you see the difference in what it's saying? What it's saying is this. Here's the point. Persevering to the end does not earn participation in Christ. It verifies participation in Christ. Perseverance is not a payment for getting into Christ. It is a proof that you are in Christ. That's the crucial significance of this verb. We have become if we persevere. So, the person who drifts along in sin, who makes no business in life out of pursuing holiness, doesn't fall out of Christ. He verifies that he was never in Christ. That's the point of the tense of the verb. Verse, verb, in the verse. Now, there's another verse that says almost the same thing in different words. Turn with me to chapter 10, verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 14. This one takes a little more reflection, so look very carefully. By a single offering... He, that is Christ, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified or literally, the NIV gets it right this time, are being made holy or are being sanctified, process, implied in that present tense verb. Now think about this sentence for me, with me for a minute. They have been perfected for how long? Forever. It's past. It's done. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It does not say they will get perfection if they get sanctified. That is not what it says. It says they have been perfected, who are being sanctified. It's finished, it's eternal. That's exactly the same thought we saw in chapter 3, verse 14. The pursuit of holiness. What's another name for the pursuit of holiness? Sanctification. The pursuit of holiness is not earned. Well, let me say it another way. The pursuit of holiness does not earn the perfection that Jesus bought for us. Rather, the process of sanctification shows that we are in the number for whom perfection was bought. Now, do you see that? The text says he has already perfected for all time. Somebody, who, who has he already perfected for all time? A group of people, who are they? They are the people who are being sanctified. Exactly the same thought. Sanctification, the growth in holiness, is the evidence of belonging to the number for whom Jesus purchased perfection. This is glorious news. That it is finished. The purchase of perfection is done. Now, are you a part of the number? Are you being sanctified? Are you on the road of holiness? Are you pursuing it with a sense of urgency that accords with its true value? So I conclude in answer to question number three. 3, that someone who drifts away from God, makes shipwreck of faith, did not lose a salvation that they once had, but they show by their lack of perseverance that they never belonged to Christ. They were never born again. They were never justified. They were never adopted. They were never sealed. Nobody is under the blood of Jesus, which purchases their perfection. Who slips out of the blood of Jesus? Nobody. Question number four, finally. If this is true, if you're tracking with me to this point, should we pay any attention to these warnings? I can remember 17 years ago, this month, as though it were yesterday. Yesterday. The first time this was ever presented to me in a class called Unity of the Bible by Daniel Fuller. It so blew me out of the water and confused me that I went home and wept. I wept a lot that semester. (laughs) Um, I just couldn't. I had been brought up so differently. As many of you have. I couldn't see the point of this text if I was eternally secure. Just take it out of the Bible. Skip it when I get to it. It's not relevant for me. I'm eternally secure, right? And I just hope you have the patience to weep your way through to biblical understanding rather than bringing your preconceptions to this text. There are two reasons I want to give you why I believe those who believe themselves to be elect, who believe that they are justified by faith, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are sealed under the day of redemption, should read this text and tremble. Reason number one. Verse nine. After he finishes writing this warning in chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, he says, With a heart growing warm with love for these people as mine grows for yours. Though we speak thus, that is with these threatenings and warnings, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. Now just stop and think about the implication of that verse. Here is a writer whose heart grows warm And he says, there grows up within me strong confidence. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. And then he goes on to talk about why he thinks they're going to make it in verses 10 through 12. Because God's not so unjust as to ignore the way they began. It's like saying, he who began a good work in you is going to complete it under the day of redemption. You're going to make it. He knew that five minutes earlier when he wrote that warning.
0: But he wrote it.
1: Why? You need it. I need it. Don't bring your conception of what your psychological need is to this text. Change yourselves. We need the Bible as it stands. In its fearful warnings. And its glorious assurances. That's reason number one. Reason number two why I believe we should read it and tremble. Who believe ourselves secure in the blood of Jesus. Is the description of the people in verses four and five. Look what they have experienced. They are enlightened. That means they've got lots of truth that has. Bells have gone off in their head. Light has happened. They've gone out of sermons excited about new insights into the gospel. Secondly, they've tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Can you believe it? The Holy Spirit comes down upon a church service. It begins to convict of sin. It begins to draw people to Christ. It begins to open eyes to truth. And that is not salvation. You can go a long way with the Holy Spirit and not make it to conversion. If that doesn't sober us, what will sober us? He goes on and says they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. You've heard it from your mother, maybe. At the kitchen table from your dad for 15 years. You've sat under preaching. You've been to Sunday school classes and you've said, that's good stuff. Never changed. Never had any fruit of holiness Breaking forth in your life to the glory of God. And then it says finally, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. And that's what I referred to earlier when I said, you can speak in tongues, you can do mighty works. And I'm just quoting uh, Matthew seven twenty two. Jesus said unto them, many will say unto me in that day, did we do many mighty works in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not prophesy? And Jesus will say, you should have learned that it is possible to experience non-saving spiritual gifts. I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now, if that doesn't wake you up to make you think you should read these verses and tremble, I don't know what might. And yet someone, including myself, will say, but why? The old questions come back from 1971. Why? If there burns in my heart the confidence that he who began a good work in me will complete it to the day of Christ. If there burns within me the confidence from chapter 13 of this very book that He will equip me with everything good, working in me that which is pleasing in His sight. If there burns within my heart the reality of Jude 24, He is able to keep you from falling and to present you with rejoicing and without blemish before the throne of His glory. If that burns within my heart, why do I have to read this threatening text and take it seriously? There is a first great answer An answer that every child in this room can understand. And it goes like this. We should attend to the warnings and the promises because God's way, God's way of keeping us from falling is to use warnings and promises. This is not complicated. I was just blind. God's way. As a living God who speaks in the pages of the Bible when you read it and when you listen to sermons, His way is to keep you with the Word. Not mechanically apart from the Word. So many people have the notion that eternal security is a kind of mechanical thing. You perform a little act here after an invitation in a church and then poof, you go off and do anything you want. And that little mechanical act Suffices to bring you to glory. That is not biblical teaching. The living truth of eternal security is that God has a way to keep his children. God keeps his children. Believe me, he keeps his children. And he keeps them with warnings and promises. The point of the promises is to addict us to the joy of heaven. Engage our affections for the glory of God. The point of the warnings is to disengage our affections from the sins of the world. The point of the promises is to make our mouths water with the prospect of eternal and infinite happiness. And the point of the warnings is to make our hearts tremble at the prospect that we might drift away into God's wrath. So that we flee to the two great sources of assurance which we talked about last week. So let me close by saying what they are again. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Find the floor. What happens when you do that, like the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness, and the people look, is that you get
0: healed. That is, you are granted a heart transplant of faith.